0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. If this is your first time tuning in, you can check out my archives either on my YouTube channel or on Anchor Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, various other podcast services. I will be having a website put up again pretty soon here. Um, but most of my stuff, as far as my YouTube channel, obviously is going to be a little different because it's not in the podcast my podcast format. Um, You know, but I think that you will like my stuff as long as you are interested in having good conversations where you don't necessarily always agree with everything people say. I'm not right. I'm not left. I'm awake. So today my guest is Derek Jensen. Um, I actually was first exposed to Derek a long time ago. And what I want to say was like Google videos. Google used to have these long videos. And, you know, there was a uh, lecture um, about I want to say it was his book called Endgame. Um, And he made a couple of statements that stuck out of my mind that I've since re quoted on my um, podcast several times over the years since 2008, when I started. And one of them was the concept that it seems as though violence and negative behavior is invisible as long as it is down the perceived social scale. Um, If it is up the perceived social scale, then suddenly there's a big upheaval. You know, basically the idea is, is that the accepted People up the hierarchy are allowed to do whatever they want to the people below them and that everybody's quiet when that's going on. But, you know, that they only light up again, um, you know, if it's the other way around. And that goes with foreign policy. It goes with all kinds of things going on in the world. And the other one was uh, a moment when he said, you know, one of the things that the Nazis said to defend themselves at the Nuremberg trials was that nobody ever told them that what they were doing was wrong. And he said, I'm here to tell you what you're doing is wrong. So um, with that said, now that you guys will have an opportunity to actually get to experience Derek Jensen and the reason why I quoted him so many times in my shows before. Um, so welcome, Derek, to the show. Um, could you tell my listeners a little bit about what got you involved in becoming an activist?
1: Well, thanks so much for for that kind intro. And thanks for having me on your program. Sure. Um, so a lot of my work... I guess there's two axes around which a lot of my work revolve probably more, but for now too. Uh, one of them has to do with violence against women and children. And that one really began because my father was extremely violent and um, he broke my sister's arm. My brother has epilepsy from blows to the head. Um, he raped my mother, my sister and me. And as a child, I didn't have this language yet, but, but the question that was sort of hanging in the air was if his behavior isn't making him happy, why is he doing it? And that, um, you know, in some ways that question has driven a lot of my life. And I, I, you know, can, I I ask that question in a wide variety of circumstances, you know, if, if to take an easy example, if, the behavior of the Nazis wasn't making them happy. Why were they doing it? And we can talk about this with, (coughs) excuse me, whatever atrocities we want or, and the same thing is true for, for, you know, a wage economy that um, I remember when I was in high school uh, and then in college, I would uh, um, go to work every day. I had a summer job during college and um, every morning when I would leave for work, uh, the dogs would be lying sleeping in the sun. And then when I would come home, they would be sleeping in the sun. And I'm thinking, hmm, are humans really the apex of evolution? You know, it seems like <laughs> it's probably these dogs here They're having a nicer time than I am. And I had this habit of asking people, or hobby of asking people if they like their jobs. And about 90% would say no. And the scientists I work with actually did love their jobs. They would call in sick and then they would show up anyway. And... But, you know, a lot of people I would just like, if I got on a bus, if I was, you know, just any random place, I would say, do you, do you like your job? Most people would say no. And I started asking myself, what does it mean when the vast majority of people spend the vast majority of their waking hours doing things they don't want to do? And, and so, you know, I've always been really interested in why we do the things we do. You know, why was my father acting the way he was? Um, why does anybody act the way they do? So that's one thing. And then uh, another part of this, and you know, my the other axis along which my work revolves, and this is probably the main one, is environmental protection. And that uh, really started. I mean, I was, you know, I I hung out in the in the pastures and. And everywhere when I was a kid, and I, I fell in love with all that. And then when I was in second grade, so about seven or eight or whatever, um, there was a subdivision. Went in next door to where I lived, and all these wonderful meadows were turned into white box houses. And I remember thinking, so where are the meadow larks going to go? And where are the grasshoppers and the garter snakes and the tiger salamanders and the western toads? Where are they all going to go? And if this keeps happening, they want to have a place to live. So the language I did not have as a child, but uh, that was again hanging in the air, was you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, and that is you know central to my work to this day of how do you, um, you know, I, it, it boggles my mind that we can have seemingly sane adults talking about having infinite growth, the, the, having perpetual growth. It's just its just nuts. I mean, the, the planet is a bounded sphere. And, um, you know, there, there aren't, <laughs> we're, we're running out. And right now, I was just looking this up again today. This is in my most recent book, uh, Bright Green Lies. Um, we talk, I brought it with a couple other people, Max wilbert and Lear Keith. And we talk at one point about, at this point, the total mass of humans is 10 times the mass of all other land mammals. And, um, and just today, somebody was saying to me, well, if you suggest any limits for how big humans can get, then that means you're a eugenicist. I'm like, well. What? <laughs> I, yeah. What... So anyway, anyway, so that's, that's, where, right. that's, that's where a lot of it started. Um, so I guess there's three three strains here. one is you know my father's violence. and then I also became pretty cynical pretty quickly about the institutions because in my parents' divorce, there was a lot of trouble with the judge who was a tennis buddy of my father's. so it's like oh. I learned a bit about uh, you know how the as some people call it the just us system um you know I, I learned I learned to be a bit cynical about that. the people in I was a, a Seventh-day Adventist as a kid uh, and the people in the church uh, for the most part supported my father. So I learned to have, and I didn't, you know, as the cliche goes, I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and in, in that, you know, my experiences make it so that the entire justice system is ridiculous and, and the entire, you know, all churches are completely corrupt. I didn't, I didn't go that direction, but I did learn a healthy disrespect for institutions that uh, – I love the line. I know I'm sort of rambling, but this is what I do. Um, I love the line by Will Rogers that Will Rogers never met a man he didn't like. And what his son later said is a lot of people misinterpret that to mean that he liked everybody. But that's not true. He said he disliked a great number of people. It's just when he met you, he liked you, and you had to earn the disrespect. Right. I love like that. Yeah, I, I love that. And and so I guess with institutions, I never met an institution that I didn't dislike at first then. But right. an, an institution can still earn my respect by, by proving itself to be different. But at first, it's like, nah, they got to prove themselves. Um, which, by the way, I'm going a different direction again, is what Noam Chomsky says – should be our attitude toward any authority that he doesn't take the absurd notion that, that some anarchists have of all authority is inherently oppressive, but instead he says, and I agree with this, that all authority must be, must, must uh, pay its way, you know? And, And the example he gives is that when he was out with a walk with his grandchild, if the grandchild started to walk into a busy highway he would coercively, you know, he would physically grab the kid and he's the, he's the authority. The kid does not get to walk in the highway, even if the kid really wants to. Right. And another great example of this is, is when, when I was, uh, when I lived in Spokane back in my thirties, I I went hunting a few times and um, for deer and uh, before any animal rights, people get really mad at me. I'll, I'll say I was a terrible hunter. And the only thing I ever got was lost um, and I, I went with a couple hunters who were really, really good, very experienced. And when we would be driving out in the pickup, we're all equals. And there's like, Derek, do you want to, you know, just my opinion is every bit as valuable as theirs. And then we get there, we get out of the truck, they hand me the gun. And then I do what they tell them because they're experienced and I'm not. So in that time, there is, there are places, I mean, I was a high jump coach later, and obviously I taught my students or my athletes how to, how to jump. And that's, you know, I was the authority in high jumping. And then if I went to dinner with my jumpers, then we would all choose where we would go. I wasn't in charge of that. So I'm a full believer in authority when it is appropriate. Um,
0: let me, um, I mean, I guess take a moment just to kind of comment on my views on that, because I think it kind of will delve into a little bit about what we're going to talk about, That, like what led to this conversation, is that, you know, I've had experience with different anarchists, you know, of different schools. Um, I've, I've debated a lot of anarcho-capitalists in my time. Um, I've only met a couple of anarcho-primitivists, and listening to your earlier work, I kind of got the feeling that that was the closest school that came to my mind when I thought about the way you viewed the world. Um, you know, and obviously I've talked to a lot of anarcho-communists, but it's uh, one of the things like when you bring up the authority point, this was a point I make all the time was that, because we ran into this in Occupy when I was part of Occupy is that there would be a lot of anti-authoritarian personalities. And then when you hang around them long enough, you start to realize that for some reason they're doing all of the talking and then they're making all the decisions and they're kind of telling people what to do. And it's like, These are the people who are speaking loudest about how we shouldn't have a hierarchical structure. And that's why I've told people kind of a saying that says, you know, be careful of people who despise all authority because they may want the job themselves. You know, um, and I think like when you you pointed out that's absurd, I agree with you. And I think that in some cases, some of the stuff, especially going on on the left right now, is anti-authoritarian, but it doesn't really give us a a real solution with what to replace the system with, whether it's uh, the police or the state or, you know, it's like, you know, some of the ideas work and some of them don't, you know, um, but it almost seems like they wish, you know, they abolish the police movement, for example, meaning abolish, not the defund part, but that's a separate discussion. A lot of them, when I try to talk to them, I'm like, have you ever lived in one of those communities? Like, do you know what it's like? Because the authoritarians are there; they're the gang members. I mean, like, it's not to say that the police aren't involved because they are. But in that, like, in the community that I grew up in, I called the police once because we thought there was a burglar in our house, and it took them two hours to get there. It's not the police necessarily. Not that there's, you know, not that police are perfect. I'm not going down that road either. But they, it's almost like they don't. They're. I run into two types. They're either completely unaware that there's this criminal element that will absolutely take authority if you don't have anything to oppose it or they happen to be criminals <laughs> like, and they know that it'll make their life easier. I mean, could you comment on that? What would your feelings be about that? Um. Yeah, I, I, I
1: agree with that. And there, you know, years ago I interviewed Christian Parenti who wrote a, basically an anti-cop book. Um, but he was, he was pretty, I think it was called lockdown America. And but he was fairly sane about it and he he pointed out that many members of many people who live in extremely poor neighborhoods actually want more police presence and the right. line the line he used that really struck me was that the police are not even the most well armed or organized gang operating there right and when I used to teach I used to teach at Pelican Bay State Prison which is a supermax and when I taught there I mean I'll just be honest and 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 tell you that um, most of my students thought that pri- prison abolitionists were uh, completely naive and have right. and, and what they would say to me and more than one student who didn't have anything to do with each other so this is this is not like two friends told me this but multiple people from completely different separate yards told me this, that, um, the only way that you can abolish prisons is if you're going to kill a lot of people. Um, because, you know, honestly, some of my students, okay, honestly, first off, some of my students, it should have been their parents in prison instead of them because they never stood a chance. I had students who were out, were put out to prostitution by their grandparents when they were five years old. Right. And that kid never had a chance. I had one student who uh, was, he was literally homeless on the street with his little brother at six years old by himself, not with a parent. Sure. And, you know, after he killed someone was probably one of the first times in his life he ever had, he knew where his next meal was coming from. And the and I, ha- I had some students that, honestly, if you kept them off of heroin or meth, they would be perfectly fine neighbors. They were right, nice people. Okay, that was some of them. I also had students who, like I had one student who had been, uh, somebody else carjacked somebody, called up this guy, and this guy, for the fun of it, went over and tortured the guy to death. And that's uh that person needs to not be in society and you know my students themselves recognize this my the 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 the, the
0: um people literally in prison in prison were not prison abolitionists for the most part right and, and that's exactly when you talk about the naivete that's exactly what i run into and i think part of it is that they there's a racial element to it, of course. So they assume that anybody who's Caucasian cannot have ever experienced that life. You know, where I lived, gunshots in the distance were so common, I just stopped reacting. I didn't even realize that that is what had happened to me until I had a friend over who was from a different neighborhood who literally jumped in his seat when an automatic weapon went off in the distance. You know, and I just didn't, I just casually went back to watching TV. My next door neighbor opened up a crack house. You know, there were shootings. on a, It's like, so many of these people don't, They've never been there. They don't know what it looks like. And, you know, I I followed, um, I guess if I had to talk a little bit about my philosophy on this, I do eventually believe that we should evolve past the need for these things. I follow the teachings of a man named Jacques Fresco, who um, was, I guess, it's kind of hard to put it because there isn't really an anarcho-system that you could describe it as. I'd say he had a lot in common with anarcho-syndicalists, but he felt that we should use science completely holistically without any profit motive and Etc. But he pointed out, yes, people are definitely a, um, a consequence of their environment. There's no question. And you can treat the environmental issues and it will certainly have an impact. But he also said, but you can't just throw a lever and turn off police and put the cart before the horse because so people this, have to change.
1: <clears throat> this is a, this is, you've just raised a fundamental split in the, uh, th- there is a, there has been for a long time, a, a war for 2,000 years, a war for the soul of anarchism. Sure. And I wrote a book about this which uh got me just which got me essentially blacklisted from my it, it caused my long-term publisher to uh destroy our relationship. Oh boy. Um, because it, it made That's him so mad good. I guess. Well <laughs> I think it is actually quite a good book. Right. Um, and the 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 battle for the soul of anarchism comes between those who understand that governments primarily help those in power. You know, when I used to do a lot of talks, I would one of the things I would ask an audience would be do you believe that governments take better care of corporations than human beings? And I probably asked, you know, Collectively, through all the talks, more than 10,000 people, that question. And nobody, not a single one, ever thought that governments take better care of human beings and corporations. And that's not even to talk about non-humans. And so we all understand that that those in power make rules that benefit them and members of their class sure that's just that's just a truism okay so on one side you have the anarchists who understand that and understand that humans have the capacity to self-govern um and then on the other hand you on the other side of this you have the anarchists who believe that because those in power make laws to benefit themselves therefore all restrictions upon your personal behavior are inherently oppressive and must be done away with. Right, and I is, run into those people
0: in the libertarian circles quite a bit. Go ahead, go ahead.
1: This is complete madness. Right. I've had anarchists of that type uh, freak out at me because in I did a fifteen minute talk once where where the 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 the, the gist of the talk was what I'm saying right now about about laws being made by and for the wealthy. And I had one line in the middle of it in which I said, that said, I don't have a problem with laws or strictures or restrictions against rape. And part of anarchy world went absolutely nuts. Um, How dare he say that he does not have a problem with a law against rape? Because that means that I have no problem with laws. It's like, Really? You're going to argue? So the sane sane anarchists argue, basically make the argument that you did, and and Craig O'Hara makes this argument beautifully, that for him, anarchism does not mean low no laws. It means having society evolve to where those laws are no longer necessary.
0: Right. Absolutely. And that's the part about it that I would agree with, too, if it can be achieved, for sure.
1: Yeah. uh, And... I think that we, I mean, there's a couple things here. Um, One of them is uh, Ruth Benedict's good culture, bad culture stuff. And Ruth Benedict was an anthropologist who wanted to find out why some cultures, people are generally pretty happy. There's a lot of cooperation, not much competition. They're not really warlike. And for the most part, and, and other cultures, people are less happy. There's a lot of competition. how, What's the difference? Why is it that some cultures are these different ways? And she tried a lot of variables. You know, is it race? Is it uh, patrilineality, matrilineality? Is it house size? And what she realized is that there is a pretty straightforward rule, which is the cultures that have that are, are what she called good or synergistic are they have recognized that humans are both selfish and altruistic. And what they have done is destroy the bifurcation, destroy the split between, between selfishness and altruism by praising behavior that benefits society as a whole and disallowing behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. So, for example, if I go fishing and I catch a bunch of salmon and I now give the salmon to everybody in the community, everybody will praise me for that behavior. But if on the other hand I catch a bunch of salmon and I try to sell them, people will get mad at me and will say, Wow, he's a jerk. He didn't. This is how a healthy family works, you know? Right, right. No nobody in a family, if 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 one of the people says, Junior, will you please pass me the potatoes? And Junior says, That'll cost you five dollars. I mean, that's not how it works. Sure. And and so you extend that to the larger to the larger community, and my point is, oh, and, and then the, the, if, if on the other hand, the culture rewards behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group, <clears throat> capitalism,, <clears throat> okay, right right. Um, then what you're going to get is behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. So basically, you get what you socially reward in general. And what this has to do uh, there's a couple problems with this. One of them is that I think it's this Dunbar is the name. There's Dunbar's number, which is a certain number beyond which you can't have direct democracy or direct decision-making processes. It's about 120 people. When your community gets larger than that, you no longer have everything face-to-face. And so when you have a larger community, you're going to uh, perforce. I mean, if you have a smaller community, simply... I'm sure at some point in your life, your mom gave you the look, right? Sure. And that's all she had to do. I can still remember the first time ever that I pushed a a shopping cart. I'm probably five years old. I rammed it into my mom's Achilles tendon. Oh. And I still, and I'm not on purpose obviously, but I'm five years old.
0: Uh, That happens all the
1: time. (laughs) And she, she turned to me and she gave me that look. And 55 years later, I still remember that look and still remember, Oh, I need to be careful when I push this. So the point is, in a small community, those looks can work. But if you get a million people, a looks a look itself is not going to work. And and also, um, when you get larger numbers of people, um, social you can't have all the social relations. And so, larger number of people, you're going to have other. You're going to it will require other means to socially constrain the bad behavior. And then there's one more thing I was going to say about that. Oh, and the other thing to bring into this, and this is one reason that a lot of anarchists don't have solutions, is we need to talk about Lewis Mumford. And Lewis Mumford was, I think, the most important philosopher of the 20th century, um, certainly the most important philosopher on uh, technology. And he talked about how technologies can be how a technology does not emerge from a social vacuum. So um, the local Indians where I live now, the Tolowa, did not invent refrigerators. But that's not because they were too stupid to invent refrigerators. It's because their society didn't require them. I mean, for one thing, right. when, you, when you've got all these salmon, salmon stay fresher in the river anyway. So there's actually no need for it. And he argued that certain technologies spring from – and lead to democratic social structures and certain technologies spring from and lead to authoritarian power structures. And a great example, I mean, a simple example is bows and arrows, that anybody can make a bow and arrow. They can make it badly, but they can still, nobody can control your access to, you know, a piece of wood and a piece of string or gut or whatever it is you're going to make it out of. And pottery is another example. Nobody can control your, or basket weaving. Nobody can control your access to reeds. On the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, um, mining is, a, is an authoritarian uh, technique, is what he called it T E C H N I C. Because mining is such a terrible way to live that people, it's one of the first forms of slavery. And then once you've got the stuff mined, You have to have a police system. You have to have a military system to capture the land to put the mine in. You have to have a police system to control the ore and the gold or silver or whatever it is that you you eventually um, smelt out. And a, a great example is I was getting interviewed many years ago by a dedicated Marxist who believed that it was possible to have a huge and global economic system based on purely voluntary exchanges. And he said, you can have a city with purely voluntary exchanges. And I said, great. How do you get around the city? And he said, a bus. I said, great. What's the bus made of? He said, metal. I said, great. Where do you get the metal for the, mo- for the bus? He said, from a mine. I said, great. How do you get people into the mine? He said, you paid them a whole bunch. I said, well, you know, I gave him the whole history I just gave you. And then I, I said, I'll give you that one. But what do you do with the fact that every hard rock mine in the world has polluted groundwater and if there's a river nearby it's polluted the river what do you do with that he said well you pay the people to move i said what if they won't move he said you pay them more i said well what if they've lived there for five thousand years their ancestors are buried there and they refuse to move he said you pay them even more i said no they will not move because they won't leave their ancestors he said how many are there i said 500 he said well the million people in the city vote and they vote to evict those 500 people so you can have the mine I said, great. So what you're telling me is that within less than a minute, you have moved from purely voluntary exchanges to democratic empire, land theft from indigenous people, and probably genocide. Also, you can have a bus. And the point is that certain certain, uh, social structures and certain technologies require certain social forms and this is a problem that the anarchists run into often is I saw Bob Black deal with it, And Bob Black, of course, is completely nuts. But Bob Black, he's an anarchist. He he argued, and he said he was making a joke, but he never actually did provide a real solution. He said, how do you have – how do you take care of sewage problems in a city? Well, what you do – he said this. I'm not making this up. He said, because children like to play in filth, you send children into the sewer to clean it. it was oh, like, my goodness. So your solution to, okay, A, this is what we call cholera, (laughs) right? B, child labor. I mean, how many people are going to die for this? So the point is, if you have a city, you have to, you must have, I mean, this is ignoring the fact that you've got a million people living in a small area, which means if um, Martha Stout, who wrote The Sociopath Next Door is right, about 2.5% of people are just born sociopaths. That doesn't even include the ones who are made sociopaths. And you have to have a way to deal with them. And if you have a million people in a city, two and a half percent is twenty five thousand. So just off the top, you're gonna—that's not even including the people who are made crazy. You're gonna have twenty five thousand sociopaths. What are you gonna do with them? You right. have to figure out some way to deal with them. And this is one of the things that kills me. I'm not going a different direction here, but but so many people. I mean, that's the thing, is if you're going to have a culture that lasts, you have to figure out what to do with those people in those circumstances. And a lot of people will say, you know, a lot of American Indians didn't have prisons. That's true. They didn't. Well, I don't know of any of them that had prisons. But that doesn't alter the fact that some of them at least had the death penalty.
0: There were. Right. You, there I were, think it was primarily it would be you'd get uh, banished. And if you didn't follow that, then they'd kill you.
1: And that's Yeah. And that is. And banishment is a social death, and b probably personal death because humans are social creatures, and it's not that you die of loneliness. It's just we're not wolverines who are equipped to live all on our own. Right, right. And so the point is that this is a problem I have with the anarcho-primitivists. A lot of anarcho-primitivists have actually said that they completely miss, uh, miss what's the word, misrepresent. A lot of indigenous cultures by saying, oh, they had no social rules whatsoever. And I'm not making this up. This is what they say. Um, and that's just nonsense. I mean, you, what this is, is this is an attempt to misuse um, other forms of social organization in order to rationalize that perspective, I said, that's on the, the the wrong side of anarchism, the one that believes that uh, all social rules are inherently oppressive, and you can't have any social rules. And this, by the way, goes all the way back to Diogenes. And Diogenes was what many people consider either first or West, first or second Western anarchist. And uh, he was an ancient Greek philosopher, and he was famous. He okay, he said some absolutely wonderful things. Well, actually, we don't know if he even existed, but the stories are that he. The the, the stories about him, some of them are are really wonderful. Uh, Two great stories. One of them is one day he was lying in the sun, and Alexander the Great came up to him supposedly and said, "You know, if I could be anybody in this in this society except myself, I would be you. So I will give you anything you want. What do you want?" And and Diogenes looked up at him and said, "You know, you're standing in the sun. Could you move out of the way?" (laughs) <laughs> and I just love that, and he also had the understanding that we don't own our possessions as much as our possessions own us and so the happiest day of his life he said was when he saw a dog lapping up water from a stream because he realized he would no longer have to cu- carry a cup everywhere he went and This is so true, you know one reason so many people work is because we have a mortgage, we have a we have a car, we have all these possessions that we end up devoting our lives to. So he's he's right on that. And one more good one is there was this other Greek philosopher came up to him one day and said, you know, and I think he was washing turnips in a stream, and and the other philosopher said to him, you know, if you would learn how to be nice to sort of suck up to those in power, you wouldn't have to wash turnips. And Diogenes supposedly responded, well if you would learn to wash turnips, you wouldn't have to suck up to those in power. And so those are just beautiful lines. So that makes him sound really great. But he also, he did a bunch of other things like he would walk around the market masturbating and (laughs) um, people would say, that's gross. And he would say, no, I wish it was this easy to sate my other hunger by rubbing my belly. And man, and the point, and he would also (laughs) poop in the amphitheater. He would poop in, in like, just in plain sight. In, in, not just in plain sight, but in everybody else's way, and he would uh, so and and he would beg from people, and then when when they would uh, get mad, they, they, when they would insult him or uh, sorry,
0: mm-hmm. he would
1: beg from people and then insult them. And at one point, somebody said, "Do you want to come over for dinner? You don't have any food." He said, "Sure, I'll come over for dinner." He started peeing on the guy's floor, and the guy said, "Don't pee on my floor!" So he peed on the guy. Whoa. And so the point is what he was, the point he was making with all that is no social rules shall constrain me.
0: Right. And that's actually, yeah, that plays into like what I would point out is that my experience with certain anarchist personalities would lead exactly. To I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'd want you as my neighbor in a stateless society. You know, that's like, um, my ex-wife uh, went with a guy that we met at the Libertarian National Party Convention. And he, of course, was a big-time anarchist, very anti-police, very anti-authority. And he got her completely wrapped up into that mindset to the point where she didn't feel you should ever call the police. And she went to live with him for a while. And eventually he beat her bloody and forced her to drink his urine. You know, And I'm like, well, yes, of course that person doesn't want any form of authority to exist in the world. Of course they don't want police. Of course they don't want... You know, and I'm like, this is the last person I would want as my neighbor if we were in a stateless society. And I've, and I've spoken to some of the nicer ones. It's like a, Mary Ruart was an anarcho-capitalist um, that was uh, one of the big pushers for the nomination in 2008 when I was a libertarian. And she wrote a book uh, that got her in a lot of trouble that kind of detailed, well, children might freely decide to get involved in child pornography. And even though we don't like that, we can't stop them. And, you know, and I, I remember talking to her for a while because I was a delegate and I said, you know, you know, with the exception of this stuff, which I'm never going to agree with, you know, you seem like a pleasant enough and peaceful person, but if we were to have an anarchist society tomorrow, I can't be confident that every one of my neighbors is going to be Mary Ruart, you know, and another one was Christopher Cantwell. He was a big time anarcho-capitalist at one time. And then he went and became a crazy white nationalist skinhead. You know, they just some of the personalities who gravitate to this are not people that you want in your life, and they wouldn't be people you would want in your tribe. It seems like they, you know, when you look back on it, and I don't want to rant too much about this, but I I remember when we were discussing the reason that they felt that you don't need social programs as charity. And I said, oh, okay, so charity is going to replace welfare, and they would say yes. And I'm like, aren't you guys all like big time students of Ayn Rand, who literally says that altruism is evil and immoral, you know, and that anybody who needs it is a parasite. I'm like, so I'm supposed to believe if I just surrender to your ideology, and you take over society that we don't need welfare anymore. Because the people who follow the Ayn Rand Bible, because that's really what it becomes for some of them, don't think that we need to give anything to the poor. And I'm like, that's so many aspects of it make it difficult for me to believe that I could live with them. And on the other side of it, you know, I recently had an interaction which I was kind of surprised that it went well. I was expecting to get shredded, but, um, the anarcho-communists, I was on one of their forums and because a lot of members of Antifa are anarcho-communists, this kind of comes back to what we're discussing earlier. I said, you know, they're like, you know, do you think one of them just kind of said, you know, do you think we'll ever succeed in what we're doing? And I said, well, you know, I don't think that rioting and burning and destroying other people's property is going to do a lot for people to be confident that we can just simply, you know, all just hunker down and be peaceful and that we don't need the state. I think that's a very poor way to communicate to anybody that we don't need police. And the funny thing is, is I'm watching because I have conservative friends, and I'm, I'm watching even moderate Republicans, like people who just, you know, they're not, you know, Trumper types, you know, maybe they were Uh, Bush types or something, who I don't agree with on most things politically, but these are people who would have never been comfortable with any kind of police state measures or anything like that, who are now suddenly becoming more comfortable with the idea, especially if they see Antifa activists just, um, like, for example, the recent incident that just took place in Los Angeles where a trans person exposed themselves, and some people showed up to peacefully protest against the policy that allowed that to happen, and Antifa just showed up and started beating the shit out of everybody you know, and like just violent, you know, like right down and if they wouldn't leave and say they were kicking them on the ground, I mean, they probably would have killed somebody if people didn't intervene. And it's like, yeah, I'm supposed to believe that we don't need police. We can just rely on community justice. And what does community justice look like? And, you know, when I see things like that happen, I'm like, this community justice sounds an awful lot like people decided that a black guy needs to get hung in a tree somewhere because he looked at somebody the way we don't like. And that's, I think... There's an erosion going on in the way people think that is unfortunate because Jacques Fresco is a big advocate of participatory and consensus style democracy, but his version of it is based on, but we use the scientific method. We use rational and logical thinking. And unfortunately, the way society is moving, especially on the left at the moment, not that the right is more, you know, rational by and large, but... I can't see it because when I discuss things with these people, in many cases, they're saying things that I just know are factually utterly incorrect. You know, how can I have a society with them? (laughs) So go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I, I am agreeing with what you're saying. And one of the lines I have in that anarchist book that cost me my publisher was, um, how is it that so many anarchists who Claim, I mean, anarchism is supposed to be. I mean, its fundamental purpose is human, or fundamental. Uh, its foundation is humans are capable of self governance. And how is it that so many anarchists, that this is supposed to be their foundation, they do everything in their power to show that humans are not capable of self governance? Right. It's. I mean the 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 pedophilia thing is is one of my. Uh, Huge problems with so much anarchism and queer theory. We can go into queer theory if you want. Sure. Um, I don't know if we'll have time today, but it's but we can try. Um, mm-hmm. the, the The magazine Anarchy, a journal of Desire Arm, put out an entire issue in the '90s pro pedophilia, and there are. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to me that I have been my books have been banned from some anarchist bookstores because I don't believe that humans can change sex. And uh, at the same time, they're carrying books by Pat Califia, who writes child torture porn. They're carrying books by Hakeem Bey, who is an open pedophile. He wrote a poem called My Politics, which is about raping a boy in a bathtub. And
0: what the hell?
1: Oh, no, he's he's he at one point ran one of the largest anarchist uh, bookstoreslash distribution systems in the country, Media, And there's this anybody who tries to raise this issue of if we have, uh, I mean, the, the issue, I mean, what what it boiled down to in in the We Spa thing in LA was there was a woman in a sex segregated supposed to be sex segregated right. um, a spa where people are nude in the sex segregated areas. And she, there were children there and a, a man came in who identifies as a woman and uh, his, he was up close to uh, children including. And I mean, when we really get down to it, what this is, arguing for is Antifa was beating people up for the right of a male to have his penis exposed, not merely to women, merely in quotes, but to children and to, to, to female children. And I, is that really the hill that you want to, well, either a die on or B kick somebody in the head on? I mean, is that really the hill that you want to fight for?
0: Well, right. And what kind of message does that send to the rest of everybody else? I mean, that's the thing is that I, I've been watching this go on for a while. And in 2008, we were worried that, you know, they were going to turn off the internet and they were going to like start rounding us up. And we read the Patriot Act. And I actually did a whole documentary about comparing the, the riots of 2020 to the January 6 riots. And I said, you guys are all walking straight into domestic terrorism. Everything that you're doing is literally textbook domestic terrorism, according to the government. And just because at this moment you think that you're in charge, don't think that this isn't coming around to bite you in the ass. Because in, in the Occupy movement, Barack Obama was not kind to us. I was like, I, I know you guys don't remember this because you weren't around. So the biggest problems I've been having is I don't want to sound like one of those old people talking down to kids but the truth is, is that they don't. They don't have any sense of history. They don't remember what what it was like to be an occupier. In many cases, they weren't old enough. you know, So they don't remember what, how the politics worked. And I, I think that in addition to that, um, there there's a war on rational thinking. And that's the part that scares me the most. I don't know if you looked at what happened at all to um, Brett Weinstein when he was on. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I interviewed him.
0: Right. And there's a moment that I don't feel gets enough airplay. And if I ever get him on, I want to talk to him about it because Benjamin Boyce did a documentary about it on his YouTube channel. And unfortunately, it's all in audio. But at one point, like he's talking to the students. This is right after the initial confrontation. And they are, you know, they're talking to him because it's just a few of them and they don't have their, you know, their monster directors behind them telling them to get mean. And he starts making very valid points. He stays calm. He's very rational. And then eventually he starts making some headway. So the people that are witch hunting him kind of figure that out and they start to try to cause a problem. And at one point, one of the students literally screamed, you have to stop demanding that people use logic and reason, you know, and then he says, and white forms of information. And that all kind of clicked into my head back to that flyer that was put on the um, Smithsonian Museum of African-American History that identified rational right. critical thinking and scientific method as whiteness you know and i just it, that that one moment was so pinnacle and it doesn't i don't I mean, like i wish i could play that back three thousand times on like you know the biggest network or something so that people could understand how bad that is because that's you know if we don't have the ability to logic and reason i'm supposed to go into an anarchist community with you i'm supposed to abolish the police but well how do we determine if somebody's guilty well we don't like them that's going to be the the rule of the day. That was one of the things that got me back into doing journalism was I witnessed all the stuff going on around the Kyle Rittenhouse incident. And when I went into studying and you know, I initially assumed this guy is just yep. some, you know, crazy shooter. And then I spent literally two weeks of eight to 12 hour days, you know, cause I'm, I'm home and unemployed at the moment, you know, because I'm injured and I'm like, this kid is, he just defended himself. I mean, I don't think he was wise. I don't think, you know, that it was a good idea to be there, but And people are saying stuff that just didn't happen. Like they say he just shot into the crowd. Now it's not just important about taking a stand on Rittenhouse himself. It's an issue of if we just surrendered him to the community justice, they'd have already beat him to death. He'd be gone. Even though all he did was protect himself.
1: I. So so I. So (laughs) do you? Sorry to put you. you you... you No 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 no. You have you have it all. So do you? Do you? I know you said early on. You know, you're not left, right. Do you sort of? I mean, if you were an occupied, do you sort of? You consider yourself lefty? Do you sort of consider yourself righty? And no, you, I would say lefty. Um, left okay. independence. Okay. So I just want to say, I just want to acknowledge, and I, I, I hate the fact that I have to say this, which gets to the core of some of the problems. I want to acknowledge your courage in giving a contrarian view. On that shooting, the, the, the shootings that took place having to do with Kyle, I want to acknowledge your courage in going against uh, the lefty dogma because even when the lefty dogma is counterfactual, anybody at this point, I mean, this is one of the reasons that you said, when you when you said you wanted to interview me, one of the things you said is, let's talk about what's going wrong with the left. Right. and this is one of the things that's going wrong with the left is that even when the left presents a narrative that is counterfactual and you have video proof that it is counterfactual to to go against the lefty narrative is to at this point risk receiving multiple death threats right and um and at the very least, the banishment that we talked about earlier—it's an okay. So, in my book, Culture Make Believe, I was very proud of myself for—I wrote the book in two thousand one, two thousand two—and I really predicted the rise. I didn't call it this, but I really—I laid out the conditions that uh, under which uh, the Tea Party would rise. Sure, and I was. You know, it's like I nailed it. I did such a good job, I thought. And don't worry, I'm not bragging here because now we're going to go to where I really messed up, which is if I were to rewrite that book again, the thing I completely missed. So I talked about basically the insane right. And I'm not saying all Tea Party members are insane. I've got some friends who are Tea Party members. Right. And but nonetheless, they're some of their positions, I think, are bad. And we can talk about rationally, whether they're bad or not. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is, I did not predict the way the left would go insane. I predicted the way the right would go insane, but not the left. I completely missed that. And I don't know if I was just naive or if the left has always lied. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know if if the left lies more now and is less rational and reasonable. And reasonable, I mean, that, uh, is less uh, reliant upon. Well, if the left, I'm just going to say it. If the left is more abusive and lying now than it used to be, or if I was just naive and it always did and I just didn't know it, because I've been mad at the right for lying and I've recognized that the right lies ever since I was politically aware at all. In fact, I've said this many times. In 1980, one of the most things I did I was the most ashamed of in my life, but I was 19 and stupid, is. I voted for Ronald Reagan. And the reason I voted for Ronald Reagan is because A, he said he was going to balance the budget and B, the newspaper said balancing the budget's a good thing. So I was like, I don't know anything. Yeah, sure, sounds like a great idea. And then if he would have won by one vote, I would kill myself, but he didn't. So, um, So then he got in and he did not balance the budget and there was no accountability. The press never brought it up again, really. And so this was my introduction to you know, I said I learned when I was a kid the sort of healthy disrespect for a lot of institutions, but Can I it, learned that
0: That point, And then I want to give you one back to before I forget. So go ahead.
1: Okay. So the healthy disrespect I learned when I was 19 is, oh, politicians lie. Yeah, I know I'm late to that party. Um, but I learned that from the right wing. And now the left is just lying through their teeth on issue after issue after issue, even when there's just it, it's. The human capacity for self-deception absolutely blows me away. I mean, that's why my most recent book is Bright Green Lies about how there are just lies told about about promoting wind and solar. I'm not saying the global warming is lie. Don't even. That's not yet at all. What I'm True. saying is that wind and solar don't really help for reasons we can get into or not. I don't care. But the 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 point I want to go for is is really the lies from the left, and I want to come back. I mean. I've seen those videos. I've spent. I did like you did. I spent hours watching this because, yeah, this guy's just a murderous little thug who's gonna. And then I watch it. It's like, holy shit, that guy put his hands up like he's surrendering, and then reached down for his gun. If you do that in a war, that's a that's, you're dead.
0: Right. Right. Yep. That's and, Gage Grosskreutz. He actually comments on my videos. <laughs> I and, mean the guy who did that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and let's not even talk about his domestic violence earlier.
0: Right, right. And
1: it's, oh, I'm okay. So I'm, I'm done being having my voice be thin and reedy for a moment. So you can say your thing, sure, and then sure. if you want, I really want to get it more into this whole lies on the left because I think it's incredibly damaging.
0: No, I agree with you completely. <clears throat> it causes other problems too. But I would say that I honestly, this is my assessment because I went to multiple Occupy camps, and they were both racially, ethnically diverse. Absolutely. One of them was Flint and one of them was Detroit. Here's what I encountered that was different. Detroit had a sudden injection of critical race theory, of um, gender studies kind of stuff. And I don't mean the positive parts of it. And what ended up happening was that I watched Occupy Detroit faction up and turn into a scenario of where we're going to compare which one of us is most the most oppressed and then who is the most oppressed is therefore gets to do all the talking. It ended up creating a lot of fighting and division and destruction. Occupy Flint, for whatever reason, did not have that. So the difference was, is that while both of them ended at around the same time due to the weather, Occupy Flint was incredibly more productive. Like we got so much done. We built structures for ourselves that were so much better than the ones that occupied Detroit. You know, we didn't have all kinds of drama. We weren't, And I'm not saying nothing ever happened. Some things did, but it wasn't based on that stuff. And I think, I don't know if you've ever studied the, the lectures of the Soviet defector, um, Yuri, whose last name I'm not going to be able to pronounce. Um, but he pointed out what ideological subversion was. And that part of ideological subversion is literally it breaks down the ability of a society to be able to come to rational you know, um, points. Um, and he was warning us about this back in the 80s when he defected. And it's kind of crazy now because you don't want to get called like a red scare guy. They make fun of people for that. But um, the truth is, is that everything he said is basically happening right now. And it, including the, you know, the infiltration of our education, um, that's absolutely happening. You know, and it's it's a divide and conquer. And it, more, in p- more in particular, the ability to inhibit our brains to function properly. One of Chairman Mao's chief strategies to assert his authority was that he would create a circumstance of chaos so that he could show up and rescue everybody from it i think that what's going on is socially engineered i don't i don't think it's a natural evolution at all i think that people who studied like the work of people like bernays for example are doing this on purpose and i think that occupy in particular if it had continued if it had con- continued to stay strong because when it began it was a colorblind gender neutral perfect amalgamation of everybody that was in it and everybody had a voice and there was, you know when it started that's how it was and then when all of this other crap got introduced to it all of a sudden we were all divided up into our categories and we could not be one unified tribe anymore and it destroyed it and i think that that's because the establishment is fully aware you know like i was called the you know like the right whisperer i was the one they would go send to talk to the tea party people to talk to libertarians, you know, because I could still talk to them because I, I, I spent some time with them. And the reality is, is that what I think at the very core of this is that there are people who are, who are persuadable on the right and people who are persuadable on the left, that they could work together. And the elite do not want that. And they know that the best way to do it is to divide and conquer. And the funny thing is, is that the first person to introduce this concept to me was a socialist. Like he was literally a member of the UK Socialist Party he did a movie called capitalism and other kid stuff and he pointed out the race issue for example was absolutely something that the elite use but it was just one card on the table it wasn't like the thing at the end of the day the elite especially in the capitalist class they don't really care what color you are they want us to care what color we are and you know that's why if you become wealthy you know, they'll, they'll, they'll accept you in with open arms you can get appointed to the white house you can you know it's like and i'm not saying there aren't so, there isn't some racism because there is but what I have found, and this is like something else. I don't know if you ever studied the work of Daryl Davis, but he rescues people from the cult that is racism, you know, like the Ku Klux Klan and such. But he succeeds by humanizing black people to them, and then they just lose interest. Oh, Nobody- is that
1: the? Is that the? Is that the guy? Sorry, is that the guy with the with the famous incident with? Um, he was eating at the the. He was eating at a restaurant, and a bunch of guys came in to con- to confront him, and he uh, was able to defuse the situation?
0: He might have been. I'm not familiar with that particular story. Um, He was a black piano player in a white neighborhood and ended up befriending a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And he has since, like, he has a collection of their robes because he wants to make a museum when he finally gets rid of the Klan. But his answer to dealing with racism is actually very similar to the way Jacques Fresco does it. You have to disarm it like a bomb. You can't walk up and shout, slogans in their faces. And, you know, because that's literally what causes it. And I think one of the, this is another key issue I would share with you that I've observed. There was a Black Lives Matter chapter that was trying to form nearby where I live. And I live in a very small farm town. So the whole thing kind of seems silly to me, you know, because I have friends before I moved here, I consulted with black friends who lived here. Is there any racism here? Because I didn't want my kids around it. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. But regardless, one of the things that went on was I introduced talking about Daryl Davis's you know, strategies. And they didn't want to hear any of it. They said, I don't want to convince people. I want to make people afraid. And I said, do you know anything about the psychology of how this works? Did you realize that it's caused by fear? And they didn't want to hear about it. And that brings me back to what happened to Daryl Davis when he went to Baltimore. Black Lives Matter there. He interacted with them, told them what he did, and they threatened him to never return because they don't want him to. So think about who benefits from us not even actually even being able to positively affect racism. I don't think anybody's having any epiphanies about how they care more about police shootings because we went and burned down our neighborhoods.
1: You know, go ahead. So I completely agree with what Henry Adams wrote more than 100 years ago that he had this great line, the press is the hired agent of a money system set up for no other reason than to tell lies where the interests are concerned. Sure. The press is the hired agent of a moneyed system set up for no other interest, no other reason than to tell lies where the interests are concerned. So I totally agree with that, and I so I think that you know newspapers lie constantly. And oh, his next line was uh, something like "believe no one and nothing," which I think is really smart advice. And I, I you know, when I teach writing, I always tell my writing students to take that attitude and to be really happy about it. It's not like, Oh, Oh, those damn people. Instead, it's like, nah, prove it. Show me. Let's see the old Missouri line, you know, show me state. So yeah, show me, show me. If that's true. Show me. I'm not going to believe anything. You show me that racism exists, or you show me that racism doesn't exist. Or you show me, give me facts. I don't care what it is. Show me that, that when, you know, when you throw a rock off the side of a building that it falls and hits the ground. I want, I want proof of everything. Anyway, so I believe that. So I believe that, yes, they are manipulating things. But there's another, or and there's another issue that I think is really important, which is, uh, do you know about cluster B personality disorders? No, go ahead. Okay, so cluster B is uh, narcissist, borderline, and sociopath. And one of the problems is that when you encounter someone with these personality disorders, they will destroy everything they touch. Like one of my students, when I taught at the prison, he was actually, we became friends, and he was a self-described sociopath. Right. And that doesn't alter the fact that, so because he was in prison, because he's in prison for life, I, I set him up with some people to write to. You know, hey, you can write to this person because their lives are empty, you know? So he's writing to these various people. And what I found really pretty quickly was that all of us ended up in arguments with each other. And, oh, I'm going to back up. So I got a friend who's a PhD in psychology and she did her, uh, part of her internship or whatever it is you do when you're, you know, getting a PhD, you have to do some practicum or something. Anyway, she did that at this place that was a, uh, a, a care home for, High functioning, developmentally disabled psychotics. So they're psychotic, and they are also basically. She said they could they could tie their shoes, and that's about it. So they would go out into the world during the day and work, and then they would come back. You know, they might work at I don't know McDonald's or something. I don't know what they would do. Anyway, they would they would come back and they would stay there, and and this was a place where they would be taken care of in the evening. And the point is. She said that the, the psychotics had this tremendous capacity to know precisely what to say when, say, a nurse and doctor would walk into the room at the oh. same time, the, 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 the patient would know precisely what to say so that when the nurse and doctor left the room, they were arguing with each other. And the point, the reason it's important that they're severely developmentally disabled is that these were people who are barely capable of tying their shoes and they still knew what to say to – so it was not a cognitive thing. It was almost an instinctual thing where they know – their personality disorder knows what to say in order to create uh, dissonance, to create problems. Right.
0: I've, I've encountered that. That's a very real thing. I think large part of it is created as a survival response because in many cases they had to manipulate their own parents to survive completely um,
1: agree with you. Completely I would say agree. that's
0: probably what happened to my ex-wife because her mother like literally locked her in a closet at one point rather than getting a babysitter. You know, so um, it, and it, the, the problem is, is that unfortunately because they get normalized to that, they can eventually just kind of think, well, this is how people are and then they're not repentant. That's where it becomes dangerous because they have no interest in changing. They just think, well, I'm just doing what's good for me. And that's like, that's actually an interesting point that I was thinking about earlier about Ayn Rand. She had a big crush on a serial killer. Most people don't talk about this, but and her whole point about him was that she, he just didn't care about anybody else, saw no value in anybody else. You know, those kinds of personalities are extremely dangerous. And I'd say that any philosophy that evolves out of a person who thinks that a man like that is excellent, like that guy literally murdered a girl and like, um, what did he do? And then he uh, ransomed the girl to her father and had killed her already and then like tied her into the car to make her look like she was still alive and then tossed her body out of the car after he got his money. You know, this is the personality... <laughs> You know that that was at the core of like you know her her thinking of that that's the Superman that's the perfect person, you know. But I, I know we want to talk about lies on the left, and I don't want to have much time um, at least in this session. I hope that you'll come back on because I think oh yeah I'd, I'd you know, love to.
1: There's we only have I, I literally have to go in three minutes right. But,
0: but I, um, I wanted
1: to, I wanted to finish my point about the oh yeah I'll by all means
0: please go ahead and do that and then and then we'll we'll cut it for today.
1: Which is well this is a terrible thing to end on. Well we'll do one more quick question <laughs> sure, I, sure. I don't want to end up by talking about how narcissists destroy everything. But the problem is. That you that a lot of these strongly anti-authoritarian movements, um, yes, there is a really you get a lot of really good people in these anti-authoritarian movements who are honestly against unfair use of, author- of authority. But the problem is that they also attract people. It's like you said: there right. are the naive and the and and the criminals. So I'm going to just put this... A lot of these movements end up attracting a lot of cluster Bs. And part of the problem is that cluster Bs destroy everything they touch. So if you have a sociopath in a group, that sociopath will destroy your group. If you have a narcissist, a real, somebody who's a really strong narcissist, not just a little bit narcissistic, but really strong narcissist in your group, that narcissist will make the entire group about them and will destroy it. And it's a really... And one of the things that's happened is that a lot of the modern, and I'd love to explore these in greater depth. A lot of the sort of modern left ideology has weaponized a lot of this personality disorder, and has made it so, um, so they rise to the top. I mean, this this is we can we can argue. I mean, it's not even an argument that in capitalism the sociopaths rise to the top because they're the ones who are ruthless enough to become president to become. CEO, I mean, it's no surprise and no secret that a lot of CEOs and high level politicians are the higher the sociopaths are overrepresented in that group. And it's the same with a lot of this cluster B stuff that they're overrepresented in some of these, uh, and I don't know I don't know the sort of hard right movement as well to know if those are also filled with sociopaths and no, no, absolutely. those
0: those like anarcho-libertarian the libertarian types I was talking about. Yeah, definitely. No, they and and because of the fact that Ayn Rand basically encourages the behavior, like that she literally gives them a permission.
1: Bingo. Okay, okay, okay. This is uh, sorry to get so excited. Sure, sure, go ahead. Go this ahead. is something it. this is something that that okay, I was listening to this one attorney, it's a civil rights attorney. Who said that he had done a study of KKK violence? Right, and he said the 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 violence emerged not from the percentage of rank and file KKK members who were sociopaths, which he said remained relatively constant over the decades. Whatever percentage it is who end up joining the KKK, it's it's the same in 1937 as it is in 1967. But he said the difference, the thing that would lead to more violence was whether that violence was socially reinforced through the KKK structure and through the response by the police. So the point being that if somebody does some KKK violence and the police come down on come down on it hard, the KKK would do less violence. But if the police we're participating in it or we're looking the other way. Well, let's do it again. This is like years ago. I interviewed um, Alfred McCoy about the politics of heroin. Sure. And he said that the, the, the CIA did not for the most part, it did a little bit, but not much, did not primarily transport heroin for places in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam war. What it did, it did a little bit, but it primarily created what he called enforcement free zones where he said, he said that the CIA would say to the local people, look, if you fight the North Vietnamese, we will not interdict your heroin. And he said, what happens when you create an enforcement-free zone? Well, I mean, shoot, think about this for yourself and for myself. I'm, I'm, we're going to drop morals for a second. But <laughs> if there was suddenly – if you had a personal enforcement-free zone Where you could walk into the bank and say, give me $10,000 and no cop will touch you and nobody will say anything bad to you. And you can go into Walmart and say, I would like seven bags of potato chips. And you don't have to pay and you can just shoplift, no enforcement. A lot of people are going to take advantage of this. And so it's the same when you have these movements that don't rein in the cluster Bs. That's going to rise to the fore. And then the the violence that happens, if it is reinforced by the right, I'm sorry, reinforced by the left, then it's going to continue. And if the left will excuse, I want to say one more thing, and maybe this is a good thing to end on, is one of the smartest things I ever learned from anyone was Robert J. Lifton, who wrote The Nazi Doctors. He, brilliant, brilliant guy, probably the world's foremost authority in the psychology of genocide. He talked about how is it that you could have doctors who've taken a Hippocratic Oath who could go and work in a Nazi death camp. And what he found was that the, the larger issue is before anyone can commit any atrocity, they have to convince themselves that what they're doing is not an atrocity but instead a good thing. So the Nazis, from their own perspective, weren't committing mass murder and genocide. They were purifying the Aryan race and doing this very difficult thing. The European settlers in North America were not committing genocide and land theft from Indigenous people. They were, they were fulfilling their manifest destiny, and this is true on a personal scale too. One of the jokes I've made for years is that I have never once in my life been a jerk. Every time I have objectively been a jerk, I've had it fully rationalized, <laughs> Right. like they totally deserved it. I only did that because they caused me to do it. You know, I would never have done this if you wouldn't have done that to me first,
0: right? So, and that's, and that's the concept that I think is, is unfortunately taking place in the left that is leading us down a dark path. Like when it comes Bingo. to, censor, when it comes to censorship, the, all of a sudden everybody's okay with that. And yep. I'm like, do you guys realize that the only reason we have a leftist movement is because we survived J Edgar Hoover? Like, Completely I was like, agree with you. <laughs> I was like, you you think it's all great now? Cause you think you're in charge. That's why I often tell people that censorship is not just a, a concept, it's a, it's a mentality. You you get into thinking, well, no, no, I'm right, so it's okay. and you know. But I know we don't have much more time, but I think it's very clear, Derek, you and I need to have more conversations, because I yeah, think let's that, do there's it again. a lot more that should do that. Let's for do sure. it again.
1: And I want to say about the censorship thing that I have never... I I've had publishers who have published other books that are, I find, odious, and I find disgusting, and... I have never, ever even said one word to that publisher that maybe they shouldn't publish that book because I so strongly believe that if somebody writes a book that I don't like, I, my response is to write a better book.
0: Right. That, and unfortunately, that seems to not – we're losing our ability to debate in fact, they just don't want to debate. They just want to silence people. Like that's their solution to everything. And it's unfortunate because it actually is not a winning strategy. That's why it didn't work for the Nazis. It's why it doesn't work for totalitarian authoritarian communists. It eventually just falls apart. you you can't you can't inhibit the ability to think and speak for too long. And I think that's really where where we're running into a problem is that we're losing our ability even just to rationally function as a movement, all of the different branches. And that, and that leads us to a scenario, and this is the final point I wanted to make, because this is the phenomenon that bothers me, is that this stuff eventually drives people out of the left. And I don't understand how this happens. It doesn't make any sense to me. But, like, after my Kyle Rittenhouse video, and I actually interviewed Lynn Wood at one point, and he was very cordial with me. I hate to say it, the right is so much more polite right now and so much more accepting and so much more tolerant. As long as you come to them and talk to them like humans, they will listen. So what ends up happening is people leave you know, they abandon the left, and to them, I look at them. I'm like, look, I understand that you don't agree with the woke stuff, and I understand, you know, like you don't like the riots. So did you just stop believing in Medicare for all? Did you just stop believing in global warming? Did, you know, it was like, how can, that how doesn't work for me. But people are so stuck in going from one tribe to the next, and that's why I, I call myself not right, not left, but awake, is because while I have a lot of leftist ideas, I also have some right ideas. You know, and I'm trying to be a natural human. <laughs> And I think that our weird. And this is the thing. I promise I'll end with this, and you can say one more thing, and we'll be done. Have you ever noticed that our pa- our poli- our politics are packaged? We are told, for example, that if you are on the right, then you have to be pro gun, anti welfare. You know, like there's this big long list. That if you're on the left, then you have to be this. So, for example, I'm a I'm pro gun rights, but I'm also pro welfare. So where do I fit? I, I don't, you know. And that's where you end up with these absurd situations, like we're a lifelong independent socialist like Bernie Sanders has to run as a Democrat, even though initially he was pro-gun rights, because you have to be if you're going to elect it in Vermont, you know, and he was pro all these other things. I don't think that's a natural way of being. And um, the listeners, if you guys want to check it out later, I did a whole video bit about how the founding fathers actually despised political parties and didn't want us to have them. But uh, I don't think that anybody should have to be held into these definitions. When I say left-leaning independent to you, I use that as a kind of a an overview of this kind of gives you a little bit of an idea where I'm at, but I will not be held to it as a straitjacket, And that's where I think we come into problems. We can't compromise with them at anything. I completely agree with you.
1: And I, I mean, one example that a lot of lefties hate me for is I think that there are things that you can do, that one can do that cause one to forfeit the right to live. And um, so I have no problem with Ted Bundy getting killed or right. Anyway. So, so yeah, I'm, I would be considered a lefty in some ways. But what I want to end with is two things. One is, um, yeah, let's start the conversation here next time. Sure. And two, um, I know so many lefties who, well, former lefties, I guess, who now the most common thing I hear them say is, I am politically homeless. Right. Um, And uh, one more thing, which is I don't normally read reviews of my work, but there was a review that somebody wrote back in, Oh gosh, two thousand three, four, five, somewhere in there. That made me so happy. It was one of the best things anybody's ever said about my work. Which is, at some point in his career, everyone is going to hate Derek Jensen because <laughs> he refuses to adhere to an ideological line, but instead follows his thinking wherever it takes him. Right. And that makes me so happy. Um, and, and that's, that's what I think of everybody I should get be.
0: Too. So that's good. I yeah, think it's we've great. Found, found a couple of kindred souls. We need to start our own little support group
1: (laughs) hey we nah. we should we should start our own political party and then anybody who disagrees we can kick them out
0: (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so thank you very much derek this is a good place to stop and i I look forward to talking to you i will immediately you know get in contact with your people and let's get this started and i'd kind of like to do it as soon as you can so that we can kind of keep this fresh in our mind um you know and we'll go from there does that sound good
1: uh, that sounds great, except that I'm 60 years old, so it'll no longer be fresh in my mind after
0: two days. <laughs> Maybe we'll just have you listen to it again. Yeah, there um, we go. But okay. um, all right, thank you very much. And um, one more thing before you leave, can you tell people where they can check out your books? Oh sure,
1: uh, libraries, and then also they want those ancient, old things with actual paper, um, <laughs> and also uh, derekjensen.org, d-e-r-r-i-c-k-j-e-n-s-e-n.org.
0: All right, I will do me a favor and PM me that and I'll throw it in the description so people can easily find it and then we'll take it from there. Okay, you do me a favor and send me an email and I will then do that. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you again, Mr. Jensen. Have a good day. Thanks, have a great day. Bye. No problem, yep.